when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Red Tape by Paul Murray. Stale, smoky air hung in the study with the smell of drab, abraded leather of its chairs. As on the first day, he'd bargained with me here. As it was in the beginning, is now. On the sideboard, the tray of steward coins, base treasure of a buck, and ever shall be, had snug in her spoon case of purple plush, faded, the twelve apostles, having preached to all the Gentiles, world without end. A hasty step up the stone porch and in the corridor. Blowing out his rare moustache, Mr. Easy halted at the table. First, our little financial settlement, he said. He brought out of his coat a pocketbook bound by a leather thumb. It slapped open and he took from it two notes, one of joined halves, and laid them carefully on the table. Two, he said, strapping and stowing his pocketbook away. And now his strong room for the gold. Stephen's embarrassed hand moved over the shells heaped in the cold stone mortar, hulks and money, cowries and leopard shells, and this, whirled as an emir's turban, and this, the scallop of St. James, an old pilgrim's hoard, dead treasure, hollow shells. A sovereign fell, bright and new, on the soft pile of the tablecloth. Three, Mr. Deasy said, turning his little savings box about in his hand. These are handy things to have. See, this is for sovereigns. This is for shillings. Sixpences, half crowns, and here crowns, see? He shot from it two crowns and two shillings. Three twelve, he said. I think you'll find that's right. Thank you, sir, Stephen said, gathering the money together with shy haste and putting it all in a pocket of his trousers. No thanks at all, Mr. Deasy said. You have earned it. Stephen's hand, free again, went back to the hollow shells. Symbols, too, of beauty and of power. A lump in my pocket, symbols soiled by greed and misery. Don't carry it like that, Mr. Deasy said. You'll pull it out somewhere and lose it. You just buy one of these machines. You'll find them very handy. Answer something. Mine would often be empty, Stephen said. The same room and hour, the same wisdom, and I the same. Three times now, three nooses around me here. Well, I can break them in this instant, if I will. Because you don't save, Mr. Deasy said, pointing his finger. You don't know, know yet what money is. Money is power when you've lived as long as I have. I know, I know, if youth but knew. But what does Shakespeare say? Put but money in thy purse. Iago, Stephen murmured. He lifted his gaze from the idle shells to the old man's stare. He knew what money was, Mr. Deasy said. He made money. A poet, but an Englishman too. Do you know what is the pride of the English? Do you know what is the proudest word you will ever hear from an Englishman's mouth? The sea's ruler. His sea-cold eyes looked on the empty bay. History is to blame. On me and on my words unhating. That on his empire, Stephen said, the sun never sets. Bah! Mr. D.C. cried. That's not English. A French Celt said that. He tapped his savings box against his thumbnail. I will tell you, he said solemnly. What is his proudest boast? I paid my way. Good man, good man. I paid my way. I never borrowed a shilling in my life. Can you feel that? I owe nothing. Can you? Mulligan, nine pounds, three pairs of socks, one pair of brogues, ties. Current, ten guineas. 
McCann, one guinea. Fred Ryan, two shillings. Temple, two lunches. Russell, one guinea. Cousins, ten shillings. Bob Reynolds, half a guinea. Kohler, three guineas. Mrs. McKernan, five explored. The lump I have is useless. For the moment, no, Stephen answered. Mr. Deasy laughed with rich delight, putting back his savings box. I knew you couldn't, he said joyously, but one day you must feel it. We are a generous people, but we must also be just. I fear those big words, Stephen said, which make us so unhappy. Mr. Deasy stared sternly for some moments over the mantelpiece at the shapely bulk of a man in tartan filibags. Albert Edward, Prince of Wales. You think me an old fogey and an old Tory, his thoughtful voice said. I saw three generations since O'Connell's time. I remember the famine. Do you know that the Orange Lodges agitated for repeal of the Union twenty years before O'Connell did, or before the prelates of your communion denounced him as a Democrat? You Fenians forget some things. Glorious, pious and immortal memory. The Lodge of Diamonds in Armada's planted, but hung with corpses of papishes, horse masked and armed, planter's covenant, the black north and true blue Bible, copies lie down. Stephen sketched a brief gesture. I have rebel blood in me too, Mr. Deasy said, on the spindle side, but I'm descended from Sir John Blackwood, who voted for the Union. We are all Irish, all King's sons. Alas, Stephen said. Per vias rectus, Mr. Deasy said it firmly, was his motto. He voted for it, and put on his top boots to ride to Dublin from the Ards of Down to do so. La la ra la ra, the rocky road to Dublin. A gruff squire on horseback with shiny top boots. Soft day, Sir John. Soft day, Your Honour. Day, day. Two top boots jog dangling on to Dublin. Lal the ral the ra, lal the ral the ready. That reminds me, Mr. Deasy said. You can do me a favour, Mr. Dedalus, with some of your literary friends. I have a letter here for the press. Sit down a moment. I just want to copy the end. He went to the desk near the window, pulled in his chair twice and read off some words from the sheet on the drum of his typewriter. Sit down. Excuse me, he said over his shoulder. Dictates of common sense. Just a moment. He peered from under his shaggy brows at the manuscript by his elbow, and muttering began to prod the stiff buttons of the keyboard slowly, sometimes blowing as he screwed up the drum to erase an error. Stephen seated himself noiselessly before the princely presence. Framed around the walls, images of vanished horses stood in homage, their meek heads poised in air. Lord Hastings repulsed, the Duke of Westminster's shot over, the Duke of Beaufort's Ceylon, Prix de Paris, 1866. Elfin riders sat them watchful of a sign. He saw their speeds backing King's colours and shouted with the shouts of vanished crowds. Full stop, Mr. Deasy bade his keys, but prompt ventilation of this important question where Cranley led me to get rich quick, hunting his winners among the mud-splashed brakes amid the balls of bookies on their pitches and reek of the canteen over the motley slush. Even money, fair rebel, tend to warm the fields. Dicers and thimble riggers we hurried by after the hoofs, the vying caps and jackets and past the meat-faced woman, butcher's dame, nuzzling thirstily her clove of orange. Shouts rang shrill from the boys' playfield and a whirring whistle. Again, a goal. I am among them, among their battling bodies in a medley, the joust of life. You mean that knock-kneed mother's darling, who seems to be slightly crossick? Jousts. Time shocked rebounds, shock by shock. Jousts slush and uproar of battles. Frozen death spear of the slain, shout of spear spikes baited with men's bloodied guts. Now then, Mr. Deasy said, rising. He came to the table, pinning together his sheets. Stephen stood up. I have put the matter into a nutshell, Mr. Deasy said. It's about the foot and mouth disease. Just look through it. There can be no two opinions on the matter. May I trespass on your valuable space? The doctrine of laissez-faire, which so often in our history, 
are cattle trade, the way of all our old industries. Liverpool ring which jockeys the Galway Harbour Scheme, European conflagration, grain supplies to the narrow waters of the Channel, the pluto-perfect imperturbability of the Department of Agriculture. Pardon the classical allusion, Cassandra, by a woman who is no better than she should be, to come to the point at issue. I don't mince words, do I? Mr. Deasy asked, as Stephen read on. Foot and mouth disease, known as Coke's preparation, serum and virus, percentage of salted horses, rinderpest, emperor's horses at Murstag, Lower Austria, veterinary surgeons, Mr. Henry Blackwood Price, courteous offer of fair trial, dictates of common sense, all important question, every sense of the word, take the bull by the horns, thanking you for the hospitality of your columns. I want that to be printed and read, Mr. Deasy said. You will see at the next outbreak they will put an embargo on Irish cattle and it can be cured, it is cured. My cousin Blackwood Price writes to me it is regularly treated and cured in Austria by cattle doctors there. They offer to come over here. I am trying to work up influence with the department. I am going to try publicity. I am surrounded by difficulties, by intrigues, by Baxter's influence, by... He raised his forefinger and beat the air oldly before his voice spoke. Mark my words, Mr. Dedalus, he said. England is in the hands of the Jews. In all the highest places, her finance, her press, and they are the sign of a nation's decay. Wherever they gather, they eat up the nation's vital strength. I have seen it coming these years. As sure as we are standing here, the Jew merchants are already at their work of destruction. Old England is dying. He stepped swiftly off, his eyes coming to blue life as they passed a broad sunbeam. He faced about and back again. Dying, he said, if not dead by now. The harlots cry from street to street shall weave old England's winding sheep. His eyes open wide in vision, stared sternly across the sunbeam in which he halted. A merchant, Stephen said, is one who buys sheep and sells deer, Jew or Gentile, is he not? They sinned against the light, Mr. Deasy said gravely, and you can see the darkness in their eyes. And that is why there are wonders on the earth to this day. On the steps of the Paris Stock Exchange, a gold-skinned man, quoting prices on their gemmed fingers, gabbles of geese, they swarmed loud, uncouth about the temple heads thick plotting under maladroit silk hats. Not theirs, these clothes, this speech, these gestures. Their full, slow eyes belied the words, the gestures eager and unoffending, but knew the rancors massed about them, and knew their zeal was vain. Vain patience to heap and hoard. Time surely would scatter all. A hoard heaped by the roadside, plundered and passing on. Their eyes knew the years of wandering, and patient knew the desires of their flesh. Who has not? Stephen said. What do you mean? Mr. D.C. asked. He came forward a pace and stood by the table. His underjaw fell sideways open uncertainly. Is this old wisdom? He waits to hear from me. History, Stephen said, is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. From the playfield, the boys raised a shout, a whirring whistle, goal. What if that nightmare gave you a back kick? The ways of the creator are not our ways, Mr. T.C. said. All history moves towards one great goal, the manifestation of God. Stephen jerked his thumb towards the window, saying, That is God. Hooray! Aye! Whee! What? Mr. D.C. asked. A shout in the street, Stephen answered, shrugging his shoulders. Mr. D.C. looked down and held for a while the wings of his nose tweaked between his fingers. Looking up again, he set them free. I am happier than you are, he said. We have committed many errors and many sins. A woman brought sin into the world. For a woman who is no better than she should be, Helen, the runaway wife of Menelaus, Ten years the Greeks made war on Troy. A faithless wife first brought strangers to our shore here, Murrah's wife and her layman O'Rourke, Prince of Breffney. A woman too brought Parnello, 
many errors, many failures, but not the one sin. I am a struggler now at the end of my days, but I will fight for the right till the end. For Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. Stephen raised the sheets in his hand. Well, sir, he began. I foresee, Mr. T.C. said, that you will not remain here very long at this work. You were not born to be a teacher, I think. Perhaps I'm wrong. A learner, rather, Stephen said. And here, what will you learn more? Mr. D.C. shook his head. Who knows, he said. To learn, one must be humble. But life is the great teacher. Stephen rustled the sheets again. As regards these, he began. Yes, Mr. D.C. said. You have two copies there, if you can have them published at once. Telegraph, Irish Homestead. I will try, Stephen said, and let you know tomorrow. I know two editors, slightly. That will do, Mr. D.C. said briskly. I wrote last night to Mr. Field, MP. There was a meeting of the Cattle Traders Association today at the City Arms Hotel. I asked him to lay my letter before the meeting. You see if you can get it into your two papers. What are they? Uh, the Evening Telegraph. That will do, Mr. D.C. said. There was no time to lose. Now I have to answer that letter from my cousin. Good morning, sir, Stephen said, putting the sheets in his pocket. Thank you. Not at all, Mr. D.C. said, as he searched the papers on his desk. I'd like to break a lance with you, old as I am. Good morning, sir, Stephen said again, bowing to his bent back. He went out by the open porch and down the gravel path under the trees, hearing the cries of voices and crack of sticks from the playfield. The lions couchant on the pillars as he passed out through the gate, toothless terrors. Still, I will help him in his fight. Mulligan will dub me a new name, the bullock-befriending bird. Mr. Dedalus, running after me. No more letters, I hope. Just one moment. Yes, sir, Stephen said, turning back at the gate. Mr. D.C. halted, breathing hard and swallowing his breath. I just wanted to say, he said, Ireland, they say, has the honour of being the only country which never persecuted the Jews. Do you know that? No. And do you know why? He frowned sternly on the bright air. Why, sir? Stephen asked, beginning to smile. Because she never let them in, Mr. D.C. said solemnly. A cough-ball of laughter leaped from his throat, dragging after it a rattling chain of phlegm. He turned back quickly, coughing, laughing, his lifted arms waving to the air. She never let them in, he cried again, through his laughter, as he stamped on gaitered feet over the gravel of the path. That's why. On his wise shoulders, through the checkerwork of leaves, the sun flung spangles, dancing coins. Thank you for listening to Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses. The text was provided by our partners at Penguin Classics, whose cloth-bound centenary edition of Ulysses is available now from your local independent bookshop. You can also order it from our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, and get your copy shipped from Paris, inked with the famous Shakespeare and Company stamp. If you're enjoying these free readings and want to show your support, the best way is to become a subscriber to our author interview podcast on Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. In addition to helping fund all the bookshop's non-profit activities, you'll get even more from Kilometre Zero in the form of exclusive bonus episodes recorded in-store and around Paris. Find out more in the episode notes or at shakespeareandcompany.com. Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses was conceived and produced at Shakespeare and Company in Paris by me, Adam Biles, in collaboration with our Bloomsday MC, Professor Lex Paulson. Original music is by Alex Fryman, with Flora Hibbard on vocals, and production by Adrien Chico. We'd like to thank all our readers, our partners Hay Festival and Penguin Classics, and you, of course, for listening.